We're going to read two passages from the New Testament this evening. The first is from the Gospel of John, chapter 8. John, chapter 8. John 8, and we're going to read the first 11 verses. John chapter 8, the first 11 verses. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And he said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Then we turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5, we'll begin reading at verse 17, and we'll read through verse 32, the text being verse 27 through 32. Verse 17, think not that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let's jump down to verse 27. This is our text for this evening. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it out, cut it off, and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee 
that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It has been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. We read this far in the holy and inspired word of God. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Those are the words that Jesus explains for us here and explains for us in a deeper, broader way than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Are you guilty of adultery? Is this an area of your life where you need to grow and improve? Where you need to be more aware of the inroads of temptation and sexual sin? Those are questions not just for the married, but also for the single. Not just for the young, but also for the middle-aged and older. Not just for the men, but also for the women. Don't you all tonight feel the condemnation of Jesus' words? He who looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. I know that makes me guilty. Adultery begins in the heart. And what Jesus says applies not only to sexual lust, but to all desire and all covetousness for someone else's marriage. I can look at another marriage and say, oh, I wish that was mine. I can look at another spouse and say, oh, I wish my spouse was like that. And what have I done? I've coveted in my heart, and that's unfaithfulness in marriage. And Jesus connects that, this desire here, to divorce. Not only adultery begins with lust or discontentment, but that's the source of divorce and broken marriages. These are some of the things that we'll be covering in the sermon tonight, and you can see already that it's a very practical text. Indeed, the whole Sermon on the Mount is, it's the first recorded sermon of Jesus, it's the longest recorded sermon of Jesus, and it's not about blood atonement, it's not about his identity as the Son of God, it's not about the way of salvation, it's not about the comfort of the gospel in the forgiveness of sins, it's not about those things, but about sanctification. It describes the spiritual character of the believer and the living, the lives of God's people. In this section that we're looking at here in Matthew chapter 5, there are two things that Jesus is demonstrating. 
He sets those two things before us in verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And the other in verse 20. I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Those are the two things that Jesus is demonstrating here. And he's doing that over against the the Pharisees who claim to keep the law perfectly. Who did that by reducing the law to externals and diminishing the commandments of God. And Jesus is coming back to say, it's not I who destroy the law, but you who destroy the law. I come to establish the law in its spiritual principles. And so, we saw that last week when we looked at murder. What is murder? It's anger. It's hatred. It's evil speaking. And your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Yes, in this way, that we need the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is speaking here especially of our godliness. That must be broader, that must be deeper than the externalism, the checking boxes. We've completed this righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So let's consider tonight Jesus' reset on adultery. Jesus reset on adultery. Notice first with me, adultery in the heart. That's the way Jesus describes adultery here. Notice second with me, dealing with, the, with sexual temptation. And Jesus has things to say about that here. And then third, hope for our marriages. Jesus reset on adultery. I used the illustration last week of taking a computer that you've had for a few years and it's very slow and you restore it to factory settings and you do that to get rid of the clutter and the misinformation that has accumulated on there and distorted it. And that's what Jesus is doing here with these commandments. We saw that with the sixth commandment and now with the seventh. There are two things that Jesus talks about here with regard to the seventh commandment that demonstrate that the Pharisees had reduced the requirements of this commandment to that which was external. And I want to start with the second of those. That's in verses 31 and 32. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. When Jesus says, it has been said, he's not referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Then he would have said, it is written. But instead, he's referring to the tradition of the Jews and the the Pharisees, especially in their writing and their application of the law. And a writing of divorcement here refers to an official paper that frees her from the marriage bond. He's saying, that or the Pharisees were saying that you shouldn't just abandon your wife and run off with another woman. There needs to be some respect in the way that you divorce a woman. At least give her divorce papers so that she's free to marry again. If you did all that in their minds, you were free from the breaking of the seventh commandment. And you see that they had a very cavalier approach towards marriage something like no-fault divorce in our land today. 
This, they claim, was based on the civil law that Moses gave in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verses 1 and following. Deuteronomy 24, when a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. What they did was reduce this to mean you may divorce when you're dissatisfied with the woman that you have married. And in your dissatisfaction, you should just do this. Make sure she's free from the marriage bond. The Pharisees allowed all kinds of things for divorce. She put too much salt on your food. She gained too much weight. She grew unattractive to you. She spoke disrespectfully to you. These were all legitimate grounds in their law for divorce. And you recognize the cavalier attitude that they had towards divorce in the question that they put to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, they came to him, tempting him, and say unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Any cause. Now you go back to the Old Testament, and you read, for example, in Malachi or in Nehemiah, and you see that this was already the practice of the returned captives soon after they came back to the promised land. And, and the point is simply this, that if the law allowed it, or if you could interpret the law or twist the law some way to allow it, then it was allowed. You were not guilty of adultery. And they displaced the law of God with the traditions and the interpretations of man. And as you look at... This passage here in Matthew chapter 5, as well as other places that Jesus teaches, especially Matthew chapter 19, you see that Jesus answers this very strongly. There are three things that he teaches here about divorce and remarriage. The first is this, that the only legitimate ground or justification for divorcing your spouse was adultery. Nothing else. The second thing that Jesus teaches here very clearly is that when you put your wife away for some other cause and free her from the marriage bond so that she's free to remarry, you in fact cause her to sin. Notice that Jesus says that. In verse 32... Whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And then the third thing that Jesus teaches is this, that when she remarries, not only does she commit adultery, but the one who marries her commits adultery. Whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Now, I'm not going to go into an in-depth explanation of that in comparison with other scriptures, but we should just see here that Jesus teaches a permanent view, a lifelong view of marriage. And that's because marriage is not only a bond that God has created, but marriage requires loyalty and marriage is a responsibility that we have before God. 
And now with their externalism, the Pharisees have destroyed God's law for marriage. And Jesus is saying, no, I've come to establish the law. And he allows no twisting of the commandments of God. That's the one example of their externalism. The other example of their externalism is given in verse 27. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now you recognize those words because they're taken directly out of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus certainly doesn't mean to minimize the Ten Commandments or to minimize adultery as that's described, the sin of a married person being sexually unfaithful. Certainly Jesus condemns that. But you see, the Pharisees had said that that was all that the Seventh Commandment was about, the physical act of one who was married with somebody else. And as long as you are not guilty of that act... You are free of the condemnation of the seventh commandment. And with their insistence on the letter of the law and obedience to the letter of the law, this is talking about adultery, something that married people do, a sin of married people. They made the seventh commandment very narrow, and they reduced the application of the seventh commandment to just one thing. And in doing that, they showed that they really didn't understand the law at all. Because we have only to read on a few lines in the law. And what does it say in the 10th commandment? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. That's the 7th commandment too, isn't it? The law itself stressed the importance of the heart. And that obedience is not just external and mechanical. And isn't that always the problem with those who want to reduce the way of salvation to external works, to human effort? They have to lower the standards of the law of God to make obedience possible. And in doing that, they undermine the whole biblical teaching concerning sin. And they don't understand the human nature, and why we really need salvation. And Jesus is showing here the nature and the power of sin. It's not merely external, but it's something that comes from within. It comes from the heart, from lust. That's adultery. And with a very penetrating description here of the seventh commandment, Jesus tells us what really constitutes adultery. I say unto you, verse 28, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if we're going to understand this sin of adultery and be serious about fighting against lust, we have to understand what Jesus is saying here. First this, Jesus uses a specific example to make a more general point. The seventh commandment says, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's talking about a married person. Jesus does something similar in verse 28, when he says, he who looks on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. He means when a married man looks on a wife 
of somebody else. He commits adultery. It's not just in the act, it's also in the, the look. But Jesus uses that, that, general, that specific example to make a more general point. The application is as much to a single man or as much to any woman. It's not just a married man that commits this sin. The looking that Jesus describes here is not just a casual glance or looking at someone in the face while you're talking to them, but he's describing here a looking with intent. And that's not so clear in the English, but it certainly is in the Greek, that whosoever looketh on a woman in order to or with the purpose to. This is not just a, a passing uh, glance, but but. It's looking with observation. You notice not just a person, but the features of a person. There's an evaluation of attractiveness. And Jesus is saying that kind of looking is adultery. And he tells us what the purpose of that kind of looking is. He who looks on a woman in order to lust after her. What's lust? Inappropriate unrestrained sexual longing. Inappropriate because it's outside of marriage. And the one who looks has this purpose to satisfy lust. That's the intent. And it's a very selfish thing, isn't it? To please something in self. To satisfy something in self. And coupled with lust are all kinds of fantasies and imaginations. And Jesus is saying, this is adultery. And you see here that Jesus points to a connection between the eyes and the desire. The sense of sight serves the sinful thoughts. Our senses feed our sinful appetites. But that's not just in one direction. Jesus speaks here really of something that becomes interactive. It doesn't just go from the eyes to the heart, but when it comes to the heart, desire says, I want more, and the sin grows, and the eyes linger. And so the Bible warns against the lust of the eyes, 1 John 2.16, and speaks of eyes full of adultery, 2 Peter 2, verse 14. And Job says... At a weak moment in his life, because he knows he's susceptible, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look on a woman. And beloved, if we're going to avoid adultery, that's the start there. A covenant with my eyes. Now what we see in, in Jesus' description here in verse 28 is something of the nature and the growth of temptation, of, of sin. James describes that for us in James chapter 1 this way, Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. And then James says that sin, that, 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 that Temptation conceives, or lust conceives, and then when it has conceived, it brings forth sin. And you see something of that here. There's a temptation, 
And then that temptation is fed, and then that temptation conceives, it wants more, and in the end it conceives and brings forth sin and gives birth to sin. When you allow sexual desire to drive your eyes, then you will fall into this sin. Young people, you may go out on a date with all the resolve in the world, but if you start to capitulate to sexual temptation, you soon will fall. The scriptures say, guard your heart. Deal with the early risings of sin. Something else we see about this heart adultery here in the teaching of Jesus is that this is not impersonal. Notice how he phrases that. You look on a woman to lust after her. You have committed adultery with her already in your heart. You've done it with her. In your heart, you've dragged her into the secrecy of your heart and you've committed adultery with her there. And that's extremely important for understanding the effects of our sexually, uh, our, our sexualized media and entertainment today and the effects that pornography has on the soul. You commit it in your heart. These are not impersonal. These are not harmless. These are not external, but they leave an imprint on the soul. Paul emphasizes that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18. He says there, flee fornication. We'll come back to that. And then this, every sin that a man doeth is without the body or outside the body. So if you steal something, you do it with your hands. But he's saying, there's something different with this sin. He that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. It leaves an imprint on the soul, damages the soul like no other sin. And as we think about that, we, we, we realize that that's something that applies more generally to sexual sin. It's not just a physical act. Intercourse is not like shaking someone's hand, as the world would have us think of it today and portray it. That's not how God created it. He reserved it. For the sanctity of marriage between one man and one woman, because, he says, the two become one body and one flesh. There's something of the soul, and you understand that. When you think of the shame of nakedness, even as Adam and Eve experienced that in the very beginning, this goes deeper than the external. And that's why sexual assault is so much more serious an offense than physical assault. And it's also why it's important for us to understand with regard to those who are 
victims of sexual assault, that it does long-term damage spiritually and psychologically. And that needs to be understood. So this is the anatomy, we could say, of adultery. The spiritual anatomy of adultery. It's a heart sin. It does damage. It leaves a scar. So how do we deal with it? And Jesus gives us some good instruction on that here as well. In verse 29 and 30, If thy right hand, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. What's he mean by offend thee? He means if your eye becomes the cause for you to stumble into sin, pluck it out and cast it from thee. And again, in verse 30, If thy right hand offend thee, that is, if it becomes the cause for you to stumble into sin, cut it off and cast it from thee. And then he gives the same reason in both of those verses. It is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Do we take this literally? No, we can't take it literally. Jesus is not telling us here to mutilate ourselves. But at the same time, we have to be careful not to just say, well, he's exaggerating something. He's using hyperbole. No, what Jesus is saying here can be understood when we balance what he says. On the one hand, it's to go to heaven without your eye or without your hand. On the other hand, it's to go to hell, whole-bodied. What's better? How many regrets aren't there in hell among those who didn't resist the sin? So what Jesus is saying here really comes down to these two things. One This is a sin that you'd better take seriously. Think of the gruesome description he gives here of cutting off your hand or plucking out your eye. and and It's grotesque. And and, and Jesus means to bring home to us the, the, the fact that this sin is something that we should shudder at, that we should recoil before, rather than finding appeal in images and, and sexual humor. We ought to be appalled, grossed out at it. That's an appropriate aversion to this sin. It dishonors God. And it puts my soul in peril of hell. Proverbs chapter 7. This is the description of... What Solomon calls a loud and a stubborn woman. A woman with a subtle heart and a woman with the attire of a harlot. And he really, we might say, describes sexual temptation here by personifying it. Now listen to the warnings. It reminds us of what Jesus says about better to cut off your hand and pluck out your eye. Take this seriously. 
than to go to hell. Proverbs 7, 22. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stalks, till a heart, till a dart strike through his liver, as a bird hasteth through the snare, and knoweth not that it is for his life. And so he says in verse 26, She hath cast down many wounded, yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Strong men brought to hell by this sin. And so what Jesus is telling us here in the second place is this, that you must do something radical and costly as you deal with sexual temptation. How relevant for today. You can be sure Jesus knew the day and the age that we would live in. He knew what was coming for us. He knew how dependent we would be on our electronic devices. He knew how accessible the sex industry would be to us. He knew how much media and entertainment would saturate our vision and our minds with it. And he says, cut them off, pluck them out, do something costly. Get rid of the occasion for sin. Do this. Confess the sin to someone. Give up your persona of perfection to deal with this sin. Young people, if this is a part of your dating, do something radical. Give up your relationship for purity. What does the Bible say? Flee fornication. Run. Get out of there. You don't have the strength. I want to say something here about Pornography, it's wrong in many ways. It degrades women. It inflames lust. It's fanciful, not real. The whole industry is riddled with abuse and sex trafficking. And yet it gets such a grip on people's hearts that we're inclined to call it an addiction. Deal with it. First, keep yourself from the temptation. Don't give your eyes the opportunity to feed lust. Whatever radical measures that takes. Second, do something with your electronics. If you've got to go back to a flip phone to put away the temptation... Or take your computer and put it in the living room in a public space. Do that. Don't think you're strong enough without monitoring and accountability software. Third, be accountable. Invite someone to speak into your life 
when they see your eyes wandering, when they're aware of your temptations, be vulnerable. And then if the sin has a real grip on you, get help, seek counsel. And let me tell you why. If you don't, something bad, awful, is going to happen. How does Solomon describe it? Till a dart strikes through your liver. You don't have control of the sin. This sin has control of you. Flee fornication. Talk to your pastor, trusted friend, your spouse. All of that is negative. I want to say some positive things about, I'll say, fortifying our marriages against adultery. The first is this. When you run, run to Christ. When you run and you're called to flee, run to Christ. There's a spiritual dimension to fighting temptation. There's a spiritual dimension that's missing in our lives when we succumb to sexual temptation. So flee to Christ. There's a beautiful example of this in the Scriptures in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, chapter 39. Potiphar's house, Joseph. And as Potiphar's wife observed Joseph doing his work, there was something in him that attracted her to him physically. And when her husband was gone, she attempted to seduce him. And we see how Joseph resisted. It wasn't just that he refused, and it wasn't just that he ran or fled, but Joseph's strength was in this, and you see this in all of Joseph's life in Egypt, that he lived in the fear of God, that he lived consciously before God, that he had a living relationship with his God. That's what I mean by run to Christ. This is even the beginning of the way that Joseph fights this temptation. Before, in Genesis 39, it's described that he uh, ran, he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. We read a few verses earlier, days before, that when she tried to seduce him, Joseph said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That was Joseph's concern. Because he loved God, and he knew that God loved him. He knew that God had saved him. He knew that God had preserved him. He knew God's providence and care in his life. Even in the miserable circumstances of his life in slavery, he knew God. And he said, I can't do this to my God. Flee to Christ. 
strong spiritual relationship, walking with the Lord. And that's important not just for individuals, but that's important also in marriage. That's crucial. Paul, uh, Peter talks about prayers and joint heirs. Our prayers and we are joint heirs. And the foundation of, of faithfulness, faithful living in marriage. Strong marriages against this temptation is that you have a spiritual life together. Now, there are many other things I could say about making your marriage strong against this temptation, but I want to focus on just one other, and it's this. Contentment. Contentment. That's the opposite to lust and covetousness. And that's the biblical and spiritual answer to lust, not just in marriage, but also in single life. We're in a culture that bombards us and wants to make us seduce us away from what we've been given to, to make us discontent. It does that with images, with, with allure of happiness. Doesn't this look like a better life? With independence, you don't want to, to have to share your life, live independently with, with jokes and humor about marriage and about spouses. and We're tempted in all these things. And of course, in marriage, we are sinners living together. No one. Has, and no one is, a perfect spouse. It's easy to become discontent. But discontentment drives away respect. It drives away love. And it drives away gratitude in your marriage. Discontentment is pride. Discontentment is a failure to trust God's Provision. He knows who you need as a husband or a wife. So contentment. And that's described for us again in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 7 and Proverbs chapter 5, two very important chapters on the subject of the sermon tonight, lust and sexual temptation. Now listen to Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15. Drink waters out of thine own cistern, and running waters out of thine own well. Let them be only thine own, and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. He's not talking about stealing water from your neighbor's water tank. But he's using that as an illustration for your marriage. You may think something will be sweeter elsewhere. Don't try it. Delight, he says, in the wife of your youth. And what this means for us positively is this. Not just don't allow your eyes and your thoughts and your desires to wander, but to invest yourself in and to delight in and to find joy and pleasure and happiness and be thankful for and learn to appreciate and do appreciate the husband or the wife that God has given to you. And I'll say this, appreciate that they appreciate you. Because you're not so easy to live with. Contentment 
breeds faithfulness and purity. We shouldn't blame the problems in our marriages, and especially the problems in our marriages that lead to unfaithfulness on anyone but ourselves. A man who's unfaithful can't say, well, look at my wife. Look at all her weaknesses and failings. I don't get what I think I need. That's no excuse. You can't say, well, he's so attractive and he understands me better than my husband. No, the problems are not the attractiveness of another or the unattractiveness and the, the lack of joy in your own marriage, but the cause is our response to those things, isn't it? And that's what Jesus is talking about here when he says, she may look attractive to you, but don't let your eyes go there and don't feed lust in your soul. That's not the way to respond. This problem that leads to bigger problems is a problem in your heart. In my heart. Now as strong as the temptations are around us, and as attractive as it is to go along with the, I'll say, cavalier attitude of the world towards divorce and remarriage, there's hope. There is hope for Christian marriages. And that hope, in the end, is in God himself. And I want to point to two things, especially in God. The first is God's forgiveness. Every perversion, every sexual perversion, every sin, every sexual sin, the vilest of them, homosexuality, is forgivable. Think here of Jesus' own ministry to an adulteress. First, he describes it this way in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven. What's he saying? Every sort of sin can be forgiven. And that's a wonderful thing to think about, isn't it? That's a beautiful, positive message. Jesus is saying there's, a, there's an unforgivable sin. But what does that mean? Every other sin, no matter how vile, is covered. All manner, every sort. And now think of John 8, the chapter that we read together, a woman caught in adultery. There's a striking parallel in that chapter to, to the text for this evening. The same legalistic externalists bring a woman caught in adultery to Jesus, and they say to Jesus, we want you to affirm the external letter of the law, which says that because she's committed adultery, she should be stoned. 
and ignores them. And they press him. And finally he answers them in John 8 verse 7. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. All of you. Which one of you is without sin? And especially he means which one of you is without this sin? Perhaps they knew what Jesus had said here in the Sermon on the Mount. Looking in order to lust. That's this sin. Adultery. And John 8 tells us that they were convicted by their own conscience. They were convicted by their own conscience. They knew. And they went out one by one. Where are thy accusers? There are none. Neither do I condemn thee. Go. Sin no more. Didn't we sing of that in Psalm 51? David's plea for forgiveness. And what was the sin? Murder and adultery. And he sings of the joy of forgiveness in that too, in Psalm 32. So it matters not how deeply you've gone into sexual sin. There is forgiveness for the penitent. God graciously forgives. That was the cost of Calvary. And that is healing for our marriages, hope for our marriages. Because when we drink deeply from God's grace and forgiveness, then we also can forgive others who have sinned against us. Even an adulterous spouse who is penitent can be forgiven and a marriage restored. That's the power of God's grace. There's hope for our marriages. And then the hope is also in the faithfulness of God. The commandments, and we know this, are a reflection of the character of God himself. Why does God say, don't commit adultery? Why does God say, be faithful to your spouse? Because that's God's character, isn't it? And what we see in the Scripture and what we experience in our own life as well is that God is faithful when we are unfaithful. Think of that beautiful description in Ezekiel chapter 36 of a, of a, a young bride playing the harlot, wallowing in the blood of her sins. And God, the faithful covenant God, restores her. God's faithful. Hasn't he been faithful to you when you've sinned? And now let that be the encouragement. Let that be the, the strength. Just as forgiveness promotes us to forgive, so the faithfulness of God encourages us in faithfulness. May God bless us in our marriages. Bless our young people with purity. For the honor of his name. Amen.